chapter three part two of eve of the revolution by carl becker this librivox recording is in the public domain but fate or providence or whatever it is that presides at the destinies of nations has a way of setting aside with ironical smile the most deliberate actions of men and so on this occasion it turned out that the hard-won victory of messieurs randolph bland pendleton and with was of no avail william gordon tells us without mentioning the source of his information that a manuscript of the unrevised resolves soon reached philadelphia having been sent off immediately upon their passing that the earliest information of what had been done might be obtained by the sons of liberty from philadelphia a copy was forwarded on june seventeenth to new york in which loyal city the resolutions were thought so treasonable that their possessors declined printing them but an irish gentleman from connecticut who was then in town inquired after them and was with great precaution permitted to take a copy which he straightway carried to new england all this may be true or not but certain it is that six resolutions purporting to come from virginia were printed in the newport mercury on june twenty fourth seventeen sixty five and afterwards on july one in many boston papers the document thus printed did not indeed include the famous fifth resolution upon which the debate in the house of burgesses was most bloody and which had been there adopted by a single vote and afterwards erased from the record but it included two others much stronger than that eminently treasonable one resolved that his majesty's liege people the inhabitants of this colony are not bound to yield obedience to any law or ordinance whatever designed to impose any taxation whatsoever upon them other than the laws and ordinances of the general assembly aforesaid resolved that any person who shall by speaking or writing assert or maintain that any person or persons other than the general assembly of this colony have any right or power to impose any taxation on the people here shall be deemed an enemy to his majesty's colony these resolutions which governor farquhar had not seen and which were perhaps never debated in the house of burgesses were now circulated far and wide as part of the mature decision of the virginia assembly on the fourteenth of september messieurs randolph with and nicholas were appointed a committee to apprise the assembly's agent of a spurious copy of the resolves of the last assembly being dispersed and printed in the newspapers and to send him a true copy of the votes on that occasion in those days of slow and difficult communication the truth three months late could not easily overtake the falsehood or ever effectively replace it in later years when it was thought an honor to have begun the revolution many men denied the decisive effect of the virginia resolutions in convincing the colonists that the stamp act might be successfully resisted but contemporaries were agreed in according them that glory or that infamy two or three months ago said governor bernard i thought that this people would submit to the stamp act murmurs were indeed continually heard but they seemed to be such as would die away the publishing the virginia resolutions proved an alarm bell to the disaffected 
we read the resolutions said jonathan sewell with wonder they savoured of independence they flattered the human passions the reasoning was specious we wished it conclusive the transition to believing it so was easy and we almost all america followed their example in resolving that the parliament had no such right and the good patriot john adams who afterwards attributed the honour to james otis said in seventeen seventy six that the author of the first virginia resolutions against the stamp act will have the glory with posterity of beginning this great revolution james otis in seventeen sixty five declared the virginia resolutions to be treasonable it was precisely their treasonable flavour that electrified the country while the fact that they came from the old dominion made men think that a union of the colonies so essential to successful resistance might be achieved in spite of all the old dominion counted the most english of the colonies in respect to her institutions and her sympathies had a character for loyalty that in any matter of opposition to britain gave double weight to her action easy-going tobacco-planters church of england men all were well known not to be great admirers of the precise puritans of new england whose moral fervour and conscious rectitude seemed to them a species of fanaticism savouring more of canting hypocrisy than of that natural virtue affected by men of parts franklin may well have had virginia and massachusetts in mind when he said but a few years earlier no one need fear that the colonies will unite against their own nation which tis well known they all love much more than they love one another nor could any one have supposed that the ancient and loyal colony of virginia would out boston boston in asserting the rights of america yet this was what had come to pass the evidence of which was the printed resolutions now circulating far and wide and being read in this month of july when it was being noised about that a congress was proposed for the coming october the proposal had in fact come from massachusetts bay in the form of a circular letter inviting all the colonies to send delegates to new york for the purpose of preparing a loyal and humble representation of their condition and of imploring relief from the king and parliament of great britain no very encouraging response was immediately forthcoming the assembly of new jersey unanimously declined to send any delegates although it declared itself not without a just sensibility respecting the late acts of parliament and wished such other colonies as think proper to be active every success they can loyally and reasonably desire for two months there was no indication that any colony would think it proper to be active but during august and september the assemblies of six colonies chose deputies to the congress and when that body finally assembled in october less formally designated representatives from three other colonies appeared upon the scene the assembly of new hampshire declined to take part virginia georgia and north carolina were also unrepresented which was perhaps due to the fact that the governors of those provinces refused to call the assemblies together to consider the massachusetts circular letter of the twenty-seven members of the stamp act congress few if any were inclined to rash or venturesome measures it is reported that lord melbourne as prime minister of england once remarked to his cabinet it doesn't matter what we say but we must all say the same thing 
what the stamp act congress said was to be sure of some importance but that it should say something which all could agree to was of even greater importance there ought to be no new england man no new yorker known on the continent wrote christopher gadsden of south carolina but all of us americans new yorkers and new england men could not indeed be so easily transformed overnight but the stamp act congress was significant as marking a kind of beginning in that slow and difficult process after eleven days of debate in which sharp differences of opinion were no doubt revealed a declaration of rights and grievances was at last adopted a declaration which was so cautiously and loyally phrased that all could subscribe to it and which was perhaps for that very reason not quite satisfactory to any one his majesty's subjects in the colonies the declaration affirmed are entitled to those inherent rights and liberties which are enjoyed by his natural-born subjects in great britain among which rights is that most important one of not being taxed without their own consent and since the people of the colonies from local circumstances cannot be represented in the house of commons it follows that taxes cannot be imposed upon them but by their respective legislatures the stamp act being a direct tax was therefore declared to have a manifest tendency to subvert the rights and liberties of the colonies of the sugar act which was not a direct tax so much could not be said but this act was at least burdensome and grievous being subversive of trade if not of liberty no one was likely to be profoundly stirred by the declaration of the stamp act congress in this month of october when the spirited virginia resolutions were everywhere well known the frozen politicians of a more northern government according to the boston gazette say they the people of virginia have spoken treason but the boston gazette for its part thought they had spoken very sensibly with much reading of the resolutions and of the commendatory remarks with which they were everywhere received the treasonable flavor of their boldest phrases no doubt grew less pronounced and high talk took on more and more the character of good sense during the summer of seventeen sixty five the happy phrase of isaac barre these sons of liberty was everywhere repeated and was put on as a kind of protective coloring by strong patriots who henceforth thought of themselves as sons of liberty and no traitors at all rather were they traitors who would in any way justify an act of tyranny most of all those so-called americans accepting the office of stamp-master who cunningly aspire to make a farthing profit out of the hateful business of enslaving their own countrymen who these gentry might be was not certainly known until early august when jared ingersoll himself as it turned out one of the miscreants brought the commissions over from london whereupon the names were all printed in the papers it then appeared that the gentleman appointed to distribute the stamps in massachusetts was andrew oliver a man very well connected in that province and of great influence with the best people not infrequently entrusted with high office and perquisites and but recently elected by the unsuspecting bostonians to represent them in the council of massachusetts bay colony it seemed inconsistent that a man so often honored by the people should meanwhile pledge himself to destroy their liberties and so on the morning of the fourteenth of august mr oliver's effigy 
together with a horned devil's head peeping out of an old boot was to be seen hanging from the liberty tree at the south end of boston near the distillery of thomas chase brewer and warm son of liberty during the day people stopped to make merry over the spectacle and in the evening after work hours a great crowd gathered to see what would happen when the effigy was cut down and carried away the crowd very naturally followed along through the streets and through the town house justifying themselves many respectable people were in the crowd for being thereby calling out liberty and property forever no stamp and what with tramping and shouting in the warm august evening the whole crowd became much heated and ever more enthusiastic so that the line of march by some chance lying past the new stamp office and mr oliver's house the people were not to be restrained from destroying the former and breaking in the windows of the latter in detestation of the hated stamp act and of the principles property might be taken without consent mr oliver hastened to resign his office which doubtless led many people to think the methods taken to induce him to do so were very good ones and such as might well be made further use of it was in fact not long afterwards about dusk of the evening of the twenty sixth of august that a mob of men more deliberately organized than before ransacked the office of william story deputy registrar of the court of admiralty and after burning the obnoxious records kept there they forcibly entered the house and the cellar too of benjamin hallowell comptroller of the customs then the monsters says deacon tudor being inflamed with rum and wine which they got in said hallowell's cellar proceeded with shouts to the dwelling-house of the honourable thomas hutchinson esq lieutenant-governor and entered in a voyalent manner at that moment the lieutenant-governor was sitting comfortably at dinner and had barely time to escape with his family before the massive front door was broken in with axes as young mr hutchinson went out by the back way he heard someone say damn him he's upstairs we'll have him yet they did not indeed accomplish this purpose but when the morning broke the splendid house was seen to be completely gutted the partition walls broken in the roof partly off and the priceless possessions of the owner ruined past repair mahogany and walnut furniture finished in morocco and crimson damask tapestries and turkey carpets rare paintings cabinets of fine glass and old china stores of immaculate linen india padoisoy gowns and red genoa robes a choice collection of books richly bound in leather many manuscript documents the fruit of thirty years labour in collecting all broken and cut and cast about to make a rubbish heap and a bonfire from the mire of the street there was afterwards picked up a manuscript history of massachusetts which is preserved to this day the soiled pages of which may still be seen in the boston library mr hutchinson was no friend of the stamp act but he was a rich man lieutenant-governor of the province and brother-in-law of andrew oliver government offered the usual rewards which were never claimed for evidence leading to the detection of any persons concerned in the riots men of repute including the staunchest patriots such as samuel adams and jonathan mayhew expressed their abhorrence of mobs and of all licentious proceedings in general but many were nevertheless disposed to think with good deacon tudor that in this particular instance the universal abhorrence of the stamp act was the cause of the mobs rising 
it would be well to punish the mob but punishing the mob would not cure the evil which was the cause of the mob for where there was oppression the lower sort of people as was well known would be sure to express opposition in the way commonly practised by them everywhere in london as well as in boston by gathering in the streets in crowds in which event some deplorable excesses were bound to follow however much deprecated by men of substance and standing if ministers wish the people to be tranquil let them repeal the stamp act if they were determined to persist in it and should attempt to land and distribute the stamps loyal and law-abiding citizens however much they might regret the fact could only say that similar disorders were very likely to become even more frequent and more serious in the future than they had been in the past as the first of november approached that being the day set for the levying of the tax attention and discussion came naturally to centre on the stamps rather than on the stamp act crowds of curious people gathered wherever there seemed a prospect of catching a glimpse of the bundles of stamped papers upon their arrival the papers had to be landed they could therefore be seen and the mere sight of them was likely to be a sufficient challenge to action it seemed a simple matter to resist a law which could be of no effect without the existence of certain papers paper being a substance easily disposed of and everywhere in fact the stamps were disposed of disposed of by mobs with the tacit consent and impalpable encouragement of many men who having a reputable position to maintain would themselves by no means endure to be seen in a common crowd men of good estate whom no one could think of as countenancers of violence but who were on this occasion as mr livingstone said not averse to a little rioting on condition that it be kept within bounds and well directed to the attainment of their just rights a little rioting so easy to be set on foot was difficult to keep within reasonable bounds as mr livingstone and his friends in new york soon discovered somewhat to their chagrin in new york even after the stamps were surrendered by lieutenant-governor colden and safely lodged in the town-house there were many excesses wholly unnecessary to the attainment of the original object mr colden's new chariot certainly never designed to carry the stamps was burned and on repeated occasions windows were broken and particulars threatened that their houses would presently be pulled down mr livingstone was himself the owner of houses had an immense respect for property rights and for the law that guaranteed them and therefore wished very much that the lower sort of people would give over their mobbish practices now that the stamps had been disposed of since the law could not now operate without stamps what more was necessary except to wait in good order patiently denying themselves those activities that involved a violation of the law until the law should be repealed the stamp act congress had protested in a proper and becoming manner merchants had agreed not to import british goods the governor had closed the courts stopping of business would doubtless be annoying and might very likely produce some distress but it would be legal and it would be effective the government would get no revenue british merchants no profit and americans could not be charged with violating a law the failure of which was primarily due to the fact that papers indispensable to its application were for one reason or another not forthcoming mr livingstone happily possessed of the conservative temperament was disposed to achieve desired ends with the least possible disturbance of his own affairs and those of his country 
and most men of independent means landowners and merchants of considerable estates moneyed men and high salaried officials whose incomes were not greatly affected by any temporary business depression were likely to be of mr livingstone's opinion particularly in this matter of the stamp act sitting comfortably at dinner every day and well knowing where they could lay hands on money to pay current bills they enjoyed a high sense of being defenders of liberty and at the same time eminently law-abiding citizens they professed a decided preference for nullifying the stamp act without violating it sitting at dinner over their wine they swore that they would let ships lie in harbour and rot there if necessary and would let the courts close for a year or two years rather than employ tax papers to collect their just debts with a round oath they bound themselves to it sealing the pledge very likely by sipping another glass of madeira in the defence of just rights mr livingstone and his conservative friends were willing to sacrifice much they foresaw some months of business stagnation which they nevertheless contemplated with equanimity being prepared to tide over the dull time by living in a diminished manner if necessary even dispensing with customary bottles of madeira at dinner men of radical temperament having generally less regard for the status quo are quick to see ulterior motives back of conservative timidity and solemn profession of respect for law and order it was so in the case of the stamp act small shopkeepers who were soon sold out and had no great stock of old moth-eaten goods to offer at enhanced prices rising young lawyers whose fees ceased with the closing of the courts artisans and laborers who bought their dinners no madeira included with their daily wage these and indeed all the lower sort of people contemplated the stopping of business with much alarm mr john adams a young lawyer of braintree in boston was greatly interested in the question of the courts of justice were the courts to be closed on the ground that no legal business could be done without stamped papers or were they to go on trying cases enforcing the collection of debts and probating wills precisely as if no stamp act had ever been heard of the boston superior court was being adjourned continuously for a fortnight at a time through the influence of messrs hutchinson and oliver to the great and steadily rising wrath of young mr adams the courts must soon be opened he said to himself their inactivity will make a large chasm in my affairs if it should not reduce me to distress young mr adams who had no less than mr oliver a family to support and children to provide for was just at the point of making a reputation and winning a competence when this execrable project was set on foot for my ruin as well as that of america in general and therefore mr adams and mr samuel adams and mr otis and mr gridley in order to avert the ruin of america in general were very warm to have the courts open and very bitter against messrs hutchinson and oliver whose insolence and impudence and chicanery in the matter were obvious and whose secret motives might easily be inferred little wonder if these men who had managed by hook or crook to get into their own hands or into the hands of their families nearly all the lucrative offices in the province now sought to curry favour with ministers in order to maintain their amazing ascendancy when the stamp act was passed all men in america had professed themselves and were thought to be sons of liberty even mr hutchinson had declared himself against ministerial measures but scarce a month had elapsed since the law was to have gone into effect 
before it was clear to the discerning that for all their professions most of the better sort were not genuine sons of liberty at all but timid sycophants pliant instruments of despotism far more intent upon the ruin of mr adams and of america in general than any minister could be shown to be for the policy of dispensing with activities requiring stamp papers much lauded by these gentry as an effective and constitutional means of defeating the law was after all nothing but a sort of admittance of the legality of the stamp act and had a tendency to enforce it since there was just reason to apprehend that the secret enemies of liberty had actually a design to introduce it by the necessity to which the people would be reduced by the cessation of business it was well therefore in view of such insidious designs of secret enemies that the people even to the lowest ranks should become more attentive to their liberties and more inquisitive about them and more determined to defend them than they were ever before known or had occasion to be to defend their liberties not against ministers but against ministerial tools who were secret betrayers of america true patriots accordingly banded themselves in societies which took to themselves the name of sons of liberty and of which the object was by putting business in motion again in the usual channels without stamps to prevent the stamp act ever being enforced such a society composed mainly of the lower orders of people and led by rising young lawyers was formed in new york on january seventh at mr howard's coffee-house abandoning the secrecy which had hitherto veiled their activities its members declared to the world their principles and the motives that would determine their action in the future resolved that we will go to the last extremity and venture our lives and fortunes effectively to prevent the said stamp act from ever taking place in this city and province resolved that any person who shall deliver out or receive any instrument of writing upon stamp paper shall incur the highest resentment of this society and be branded with everlasting infamy resolved that the people who carry on business as formerly on unstamped paper shall be protected to the utmost power of this society malicious men said that the sons of liberty were much concerned that the gentlemen of fortune don't publicly join them for which reason the society formed a committee of correspondence with the liberty boys in the neighboring provinces in february the society did in fact appoint such a committee which sent out letters to all the counties of new york and to all the colonies except georgia proposing the formation of an intercolonial association of the true sons of liberty to which letters many replies were received some of which are still preserved among the papers of the secretary mr john lamb the general sense of these letters was that an intercolonial association and close correspondence were highly necessary in view of the presence in nearly every colony of many secret and inveterate enemies of liberty and of the desirability of keeping a watchful eye over all those who from the nature of their offices vocations or dispositions may be the most likely to introduce the use of stamped paper to the total subversion of the british constitution no doubt the society kept its watchful eye on every unusual activity and all suspicious characters but to what extent it succeeded in putting business in motion again in the usual channels without stamps cannot be said both before and after the society was founded much business was carried on in violation of the law newspapers and pamphlets continued to flourish in the land 
the inferior courts at least were sooner or later opened in nearly every colony and not infrequently unstamped clearance papers were issued to shipmasters willing to take the risk of seizure in london or elsewhere mr john hancock easily persuading himself that there should be no risk shipped a cargo of oil with the boston packet in december i am under no apprehensions he wrote his london agent should there be any difficulty in london as to marshall's clearance you will please to represent the circumstances that no stamps could be obtained in which case i think i am to be justified and am not liable to a seizure or even run any risk at all as i have taken the step of the law and made application for clearance and can get no other notwithstanding such practices which were frequent enough it was a dull winter with little profit flowing into the coffers of mr hancock with low wages or none at all for worthy artisans and labourers so that it must often have seemed as governor moore said morally impossible that the people here can subsist any time under such inconveniences as they have brought on themselves such inconveniences became more irksome as time passed with the result that during the cold and dreary months of february and march it became every day a more pressing question particularly for the poor to know whether the bad times would end at last in the repeal or the admission of the tyrannical act confronted with this difficult dilemma the faithful sons of liberty were preparing in april to assemble a continental congress as a last resort when rumours began to spread that parliament was on the point of carrying the repeal the project of a congress was accordingly abandoned and everywhere recrimination gave place to rejoicing on april twenty one seventeen sixty six the vigilant boston sons voted that when the rumours should be confirmed they would celebrate the momentous event in a befitting manner would celebrate it under the deepest sense of duty and loyalty to our most gracious sovereign king george and in respect and gratitude to the patriotic ministry mr pitt and the glorious majority of both houses of parliament by whose influence under divine providence against a most strenuous opposition a happy repeal of the stamp act so unconstitutional as well as grievous to his majesty's good subjects of america is attained whereby our incontestable right of internal taxation remains to us inviolate End of chapter three part two